Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Obama foreign policy record. So, Richard, it seems that President Obama can't get away from international affairs, much as he may want to focus on domestic issues. Of course, most recently, we've got the threat posed by ISIS in Iraq, but we've had the civil war in Syria, the Russian intervention in Ukraine, uh, China growing more belligerent. Uh, taken as a whole, when you look at how the president has addressed these issues, especially the ones that have been percolating in, in recent years, how do you grade his foreign policy leadership thus far? I think it's one of the worst records of leadership in foreign affairs that I've ever seen. In fact, I wrote in my little Hoover column the phrase presidential leadership is an oxymoron so long as he is our presidential leader. And as I've also said, I don't think that this happens just by chance. I think what the president does is he is so worried about the question of overextension of the United States into unwanted arenas that what he does is he places artificial limitations on his own use of power. And that means that all the uncertainty that people who are arrayed against us face is eliminated by virtue of the fact that the president has tended to neutralize powerful military responses. So they realize that the return from aggression becomes larger, so they're willing to invest more money in it. And then when they start to push, after a while, we realize that there is no such thing as an isolated event. You can basically wreck a country like Iraq and create it as a base for operations elsewhere. You can shoot down Malaysian airline planes. You can have bloodletting and refugee problems in Syria. The whole dislocation comes from a man who cannot bring himself to say, I will do whatever it takes to stop an enemy who in fact will not stop until they can destroy us. And when you start reading the chilling declarations of people who disagree with the United States, uh, they may not be able to, as it were, set up shop on the White House steps, but you know that they would rather like to do so because there's nothing about a jihadist or a fundamentalist or any kind of zealot which respects the bodily integrity of other individuals or the national integrity of other nations. So Richard, you mentioned the president's concern with American overreach. That's not that's not a caricature. I mean the president's been pretty direct about the fact that he thinks America probably does too much of the world and that the law of unintended consequences applies and our efforts, whatever good we may have been trying to do, have a tendency to sometimes go in directions we didn't anticipate. In recent years, there have been a lot more subscribers to this view or a variation of it that you know, yes, America needs to protect its interests but we don't need to be necessarily spread out across the globe as we are. We don't need to be in Germany or Korea. We don't need to be the backstop essentially for a lot of countries that underspend on their own defense because they know that we'll always be there to take out the trash. So in other words, we should tend to our own needs but there's no need for us to function as a superpower, to pursue a pox Americana. How do you respond to that? Well, I've always been – not always, but certainly the more I think about it, the more it becomes clear to me that you have to have a pox Americana because if it turns out that the United States does not exert a dominant control, all of the smaller powers will be left in a situation where they don't know whether they could count on us on the one hand or whether they should try to make a deal with their worst adversaries on the other or whether or not they should take up force on their own behalf even though it may turn out that it will lose. What the United 
United States can do by getting leadership is in effect to now turn to other nations and to say, we are starting all of this stuff. We will keep control of it. We would like to have your support. And to the extent that you do not give it, we will be prepared, I think, in many cases to more or less go it alone. Uh, The alternative is so many decentralized sources of power uh, that you will see exactly what's happening on the map today, which is you have isolated sources of violence, which will spread much more rapidly than anybody ever thought. And there'll be nobody in any of these other nations who could coordinate the response. I do think, in effect, that the United States performs, it can get other nations to go along with it. So even in Iraq, I think the French would be willing to come if they thought that we were prepared to do something fairly strong on this issue. But it'd be highly unlikely that a weak nation will start to come, or a weaker nation will start to come into these foreign affairs if the United States basically ties one hand behind its back and then tries to fight with limited means. Uh, The other danger, of course, is that If you look at a place like the Middle East where the president has been indecisive, when it comes to the question of how you deal with the Hamas in in Gaza, it's quite clear that the Israelis now have a working alliance with the Egyptians. They have, in some sense, at least a mode of understanding with respect to the Saudis. And all of them, in effect, are so frightened of the local situations that they will take charge of it. And the president simply has no place at the table because he's not prepared to do anything which will shape this particular policy. I, I think all Also, the fact that Hillary Clinton, opportunist that she may be, has come out so strongly against the president suggests that people in the United States believe that there is now no holiday. That is, there is no doubt there are always two kinds of errors, one from pushing too hard and one from not pushing hard enough. And occasionally, I think uh, we did too much in the opposite direction by going in too soon when there was too little at stake. Uh, But I think, in effect, in these particular cases, the passivity has turned out to be much the greater vice. And when you listen to the president, talk, as in his interview with Thomas Friedman, it's frightening as to his level of intellectual detachment and his sense that first you have to mend the political virtues of Iraq before you could stop thousands upon thousands of people being exiled from their homes or tortured or brutalized by something like ISIS. He's just got all the wrong priorities. You don't worry about democracy first, you worry about aggression first. And that doesn't seem to be the thing that he wants to do. Let me pick up on that point about detachment because you say in your piece at Defining Ideas, you highlight two serious flaws that you say the president suffers from. But the first is that he is, quoting you here, unwilling to make decisions. What do you mean by that? Well, if you take the domestic illustration, you know, the Keystone Pipeline, uh, he never says no, he never says yes, he just always defers it. And the same thing is what he does in foreign affairs. What happens is, do you go into Syria, do you not? And the answer is, you make a decision, preferably two years ago, you find the groups that are sympathetic to you, you back them, hope that you'll draw more people up. But he says, you know, it's not really sure we know who these are, and there's some kind of a risk, so I'd like to wait a little bit. Well, the longer you wait, uh, the less likely it is that people will be willing to come to your side of the table. And so what happens is we start to see that the anti-Assad forces are now moving on the jihadist side. So having waited, there is now no natural alliance there that we can turn to. They've already been fragmented and 
disappeared. And even if you could find a group of individuals, they will not trust the United States because they believe uh, that he's just going to dole out any assistance he has in teaspoons and not give them enough to win the job. And one of the worst things you can do in war as in poker is to try and play a near good hand. If you're going to go in, you've got to go in enough so that you can secure the outcome. You can't go in just enough so that you continue to play in the game while everybody takes pot shots at you. And, you know, when you see a president faced with the problem in the Ukraine where he says, oh, I'll send them night vision goggles, you know, that's fine. But the thought that that's all that you want to do, crazy. And even after he pulled out in Iraq in 2011, all the commitments to rebuild Air Force bases, to send them various kinds of munitions and airplanes, all of these things were slowed down. And he doesn't say no, at which point people will know he's out of the game, but he never says yes. So he just kind of sits there in, in sort of the middle. And he thinks because he's kind of got a nice way with words that that's basically going to be sufficient but he doesn't charm anybody anymore uh the president's rhetorical height was in grand park the day of the election and since that particular day it's been downhill and in foreign affairs what's happened is it's not a gradual decline uh it's now a humanitarian crisis and a snowballing effort and some of us myself included thought that this is exactly what was going to happen that he could not extricate himself from iraq given the extent that we had been there and you should not try. Uh, the basic problem in the United States is we probably need a defense budget twice the size that we have. And the reason that we need it is if we have it, we won't have to use it. And if we don't have it, we will have to use it. But we will only use it under disadvantageous circumstances. Uh, the world, unfortunately, is not going to yield to his moral suasion. Most of these people, in effect, when they hear him talk and argue out of both sides of his mouth, say, there's a weak man I could take advantage of. And, you know, I'd rather be feared and respected than loved. And the president would rather be loved than feared and respected. And in the end, he's none. I mean, I'm not alone, I think. I think many Democrats now have come to the conclusion uh, that he's weak and ineffectual. And it's not going to change until he basically sits down, looks in the mirror, and says, I have been a foreign policy failure because I do not understand that it is that I must take the lead in these things because if I do not, nobody else will, and all sorts of little players will strut and fret on the stage in ways that will make it impossible for decent people to live in their own countries. So as people who have been listening to you thus far will have gathered, Richard, you are somewhat unusual by the standards of most people who define themselves as libertarians these days in that you're critical of what has come to be thought of as sort of the libertarian foreign policy of which Rand Paul is an exemplar. He in fact doesn't go nearly as far as a lot of other libertarians including his father. But the, the basic idea is that there is no problem with the United States having commercial and diplomatic relations with the rest of the world but that the use of force ought to be limited almost exclusively to direct threats to the American homeland and that anything else is basically an impermissible adventurism. Why is that in your judgment not a necessary component of hewing to a libertarian philosophy. Look, a libertarian philosophy is not a theory of small governments. It's a theory that government ought to be, in some cases, quite large, but in order to dedicate itself to those things which governments can do well or which only governments can do at all. So I have no particular use for the president or for the progressive in the Democratic Party when they announced that they could find another way to wreck labor markets with a minimum wage laws, a labor statute or something of the sort. But when it comes to the control and the use of force, it seems to me that that is the central function that government has to apply. 
So then the question is one of timing and one of location. Uh, the libertarian position, as, as those libertarians call themselves, says that you wait until there's an immediate threat and then you respond. And this may in many cases be too little and too late. You know no idea which of these brush fires is going to grow and which of them going to shrink. You have allies all over the world. You have American facilities all over the world. You have American citizens all over the world. Um, our direct interest can be impaired in all sorts of ways which do not involve simply an attack on the shores of North Carolina. And what you have to do is to make very hard judgments as to where you go and when you go. I've spent a lot of time as an academic lawyer teaching torts, trying to figure out how you deal with the simple quote-unquote question of self-defense. And the single most difficult question in many cases is, A, do you aid third parties to whom you owe no obligations but you can assist? And if so, when do you do it and how much force do you do in it? And a libertarian theory um, which says that you can fight aggression doesn't tell you how to answer those particular questions. What it does is it requires some really close analysis of particular facts and some willingness to formulate some kind of coherent policy objectives which require some empirical estimation of what you can do and what you hope to achieve. And libertarians of the Rand Paul, the Cato variety in some cases, they don't like that kind of uncertainty. But my view is we didn't deal this hand. That's the way the world is basically organized. And so instead of trying to rail against the problem of, of difficulties of trying to figure out when you go in and how you go in, don't rail against them. Try to solve them. And, you know, we make some very serious mistakes. I don't think the surge was a mistake, but immediately after uh, the 2003 war, the way the Bush administration handled the conversion to the police was a mistake. You know, do you disarm the Baathists? Do you put somebody else in charge? You have to know local situations. And there is no way, given the fact that you don't have a clear timeline between those antecedents that are too remote and those which are proximate and therefore responsible, you have to be working at this all the time. And there are two kinds of errors in these cases. There are multiple objectives. It's fiendishly hard. But the only thing that you can say is clearly wrong as a president who has come to the position that I'm not going to commit land forces in a wide variety of places when, in fact, we know that air power degenerates in terms of its influence over local circumstances the longer it's used. Uh, Gaza is a perfect example of that. People go underground, and after a while, you just have to dig them out. And unfortunately, you probably have to put boots on the ground in a place like that. And you may have to cause... you know. 100,000 American soldiers' lives, which everybody should deplore. But if you're going to lose 100,000 refugees and get yourself God knows how many millions of people displaced, it comes to the point where the quote-unquote humanitarian interests become national interests as well. All right. Thank you, Richard. And thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.